morning, everyone. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at a few passages from chapters 1 to 4. So 2 Samuel, and we'll be focusing our attention on a few passages from chapter 1 to 4. I want to read for you from 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7 to set our context this morning. 2 Samuel 2 and uh, verses 1 through 7. It says, And in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to the towns of Judah? And the Lord said, Go up. And David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. The men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord show show you kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show the same to you, because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave. Saul, your master, is dead. And the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. You know, this week we come to a large transition in the life of David. This is the uh, week that we uh, begin to see uh, the crescendo in David's experience. In chapter 2 of Samuel... Of Second Samuel, you find that David is now anointed as king in Judah. If you jump ahead to chapter 5, you will find there that David is anointed as king of Israel. So you have a southern tribe, Judah, and then you have 11 northern tribes. So from chapter 1 of Second Samuel to chapter 5, you find David being anointed king of the single tribe. And then by the time you get to chapter 5, there's been a transition, and David now is anointed as the king of the entire nation of Israel. So those two texts are going to serve as uh, bookends on this passage of Scripture. This is the long-awaited pinnacle moment in David's life. We know uh, that it is some uh, 13 years prior to this that David was selected by God, anointed by Samuel, in this future hope of becoming the king of Israel. And that is finally coming to fruition A passage of scripture that I want to read for you this morning is Psalm 78. And this, I think, gives you a panoramic view of David's life. Psalm 78 says this. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfold, from the care of lambs to shepherd Jacob, his people. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Now that text gives us an overview of the of the sum total of David's experience as the king of Israel. Now, what I want to focus our attention on is this theme. David waits on God with integrity. David waits on God with integrity. This is a passage of scripture that is fraught with potential difficulties for the heir apparent to the throne. And I want you to see as we study this text this morning how carefully and skillfully David uh, is guided by a heart that desires integrity before God. He is destined for a throne by God, and so are we in many ways. We, the Bible tells us, are seated with Christ 
in heavenly places. That is to say, for every believer in Jesus Christ, God holds for us glorious and precious promises. And what we need to do in the interim between coming to that place of royalty that Jesus is, we need to carefully maintain our integrity as David does. We all face circumstances in our lives uh, where God seems to be dragging what one person called his holy heels. There are times that God has given promises and, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. That's true for David in this context. It would be 20 years from the time that he's anointed by Samuel till he finally becomes king of the whole nation of Israel. And this is a season of waiting that puts David to the test. It tests his character and it it, it allows him to express deep integrity that the psalmist will later say, David guided the people with the integrity of his heart. The truth is during seasons of waiting, you know I have a tendency to take matters into our own hands. And when we do we tend to make quite a mess of things. We need to remember that it's all about God. It's about God's timing. It's about God's plan. It's about God's way to his ends and purposes for our lives. Waiting can be hard, but waiting is crucial for the children of God. This morning, we're going to focus on this issue of the transition that David experiences, okay? And this is where I want you to kind of Uh, focus your mind and your thinking as we work our way through this text. David is in, is in, in, in transition to the throne, ultimately to full authority over the 12 tribes of Israel. He's moving in that way in God's time. And this text focuses on the events that usher in this transition to the throne. And the first event that we studied, I think, with Doug two weeks ago was the demise of Saul. Now, at the end of 1 Samuel, we know that, they, that, that the death of Saul has taken place, but David is not yet aware of that. When we come into chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we find the event now spoken to David that brings a magnificent crescendo and transition in his life. The thing I want you to notice is how honorable David is in this season of transition. So verses 1 to 15 of chapter 1, the news of Saul's demise. And I want to just try to summarize this story for you. If you go down to verse 13, you'll find that the one that's bringing the news to Saul or to David about Saul's death is an Amalekite. Okay, he's one of the enemies of Israel. And uh, what he does is he crafts a story to make himself seem like a hero. Uh, In the story, he basically takes credit for killing Saul. Now we know from the end of 1 Samuel that Saul takes his own life, falls on his own sword. And this Amalekite is, is seeking to curry favor with the heir apparent, with the one who will be king over Israel. So he comes rushing into David's presence. He lies to demonstrate loyalty and aims to gain favor with David. He's seeking prominence and position. He thinks that David, God's man, is like every other man. He thinks that David will give him a high five and welcome him into his kingdom. But in verse 14, you find David's response to this plan, this lie that this man has constructed. Verse 14 of chapter 1 says, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand and to destroy God's anointed? 
And what David does, he holds this man accountable for his act of taking the life of the king. David eliminates this man because he had treated God's plan lightly. David spends a lot of time teaching his men to want God's, more, God's will more than they want self-vindication, more than they want exaltation, more than they want the coming promises of God. He wants them to love and to treasure and cherish the will of God. And so, so David here does not act in joy at the news of Saul's demise. Instead, the text tells us, beginning in verse 17, that David takes up a lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. Now what's fascinating about this lament, this poignant lament, is that Saul was raised up to deal with the Philistines, the enemy of the nation of Israel. And Saul consistently and repeatedly fails to be the man of God. He has a heart that's after his own desires. 1 Samuel 13, 13 says that Paul acted foolishly and did not keep the Lord's will. He sought for prominence apart from God. And so David goes into a a lengthy lament. Here's what I think is fascinating about this lament from David. Saul had pursued David as a fugitive for how many years? Do you remember? It's about 13 years. Saul lies about David. Saul sends people out to kill David. He declares him a fugitive. And he tortures David. For 13 years, David becomes a cave dweller, hiding from the one who wants to take his life. What I find fascinating is as David laments the death of Saul, in verse 20, here's what he says. He says, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of uncircumcised people rejoice. Now what's going on in that statement? Why does David say, Tell it not in Gath. And I think the answer to that question is pretty simple. Gath and Ashkelon were two of the chief royal cities of the Philistines. And what is David's concern? David's concern is that the Philistines will now be rejoicing because the king of Israel has suffered demise and death. And for David, that brings dishonor to God. And so that begins to grieve and break the heart of David. Even though he has struggled severely in his relationship with Saul, he still mourns his death because he knows that it has an influence on the reputation of God. You see, what you have is David, a man ruled by God. One writer said it this way. He said, the one who rules God's people must himself be ruled by God. And this is a contrast that sets up in this text. Saul is ruled by Saul. Saul is all about his own desires, his own passions, his own wants. And David is a man that the text will repeatedly say, albeit imperfectly, is a man after God's own heart. So this first section points to the fact that David, as the heir apparent, as the anointed king of God, is honorable in his dealings, waiting on God to bring about his purpose. This chapter is a powerful reflection on the fact that sin had been costly, that potential in the case of Saul had been wasted, and that David had lost a precious friend when Jonathan died on the mountains of Gilboa. To him, it was heartbreaking. And so he honors the one that tried to kill him for 13 years. I believe that is a powerful lesson in compassion, grace, and mercy that emerges from David's life. 
He remembers that he was destined for a throne. And he waits on God's plan and timing to bring that to pass. I want you to turn then to the next chapter, chapter 2. So David, first of all, is honorable as he hears about Saul's death. Now, you would think that since David has been a cave dweller for 13 years, been running as a fugitive, that the news of Saul's death would bring about some type of a robust claim of the throne, that he would, he would rush forward. He's got a clear path forward. God's intention has been very clearly and powerfully declared. David could jump into power, but he does not. What does David do? First, he responds honorably. Secondly, in this chapter, David patiently seeks God's time. And God's plan. Notice what it says in chapter 2 and verse 1. In the course of time, that is following this news of Saul and Jonathan's demise, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Now, what is, the, what is David wondering? David's wondering, okay, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for 13 years. This event seems to be a clear sign pointing forward to progress in my life and in my ministry. And so David goes to God. Folks, listen to this. We often know what God wants, and we rush ahead to do God's plan in our way. It's a danger that we face, isn't it? We know what God wants, so we rush ahead to do it according to what we think is best. David is not entertained by that thought for a moment. The first thing he does is he inquires of the Lord. And you'll find as you go through the life of David that on a repeated basis, this is a habit that David has cultivated. What is he saying? I don't trust myself. I don't trust my own judgment. I don't trust my own perception of things. I want God's perspective. And so as David looks at this incredible crescendo in his life, there's a a pause, not doubt, not fear. There's just this strong overwhelming desire to do God's will. What is it that David is asking? Two questions. David is saying, now, you know, when? And the other thing he's asking is, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to go? How do we seek God's will like David? I think the the, uh, answer for us from Scripture is very simple. We have two blessings as believers. We have the Word of God that gives us guidance. David is familiar with what God has has said. But we also have the blessing of the Spirit of God who comes to make truth about God's will and God's plan clear for us. And so what is David doing? David is doing very much what we as believers do. We know what God has said. And the question is, how does God want to put that into practice in our lives? And the Apostle Paul will say this, walk by or in the Spirit as you seek to live out the principles that are clearly Uh, proclaimed in the Word of God, keep in step with the Spirit. Know what God wants and begin to pursue it. And it's that kind of a heart that David is bringing before God. He's patiently, patiently seeking God's time and God's plan in a circumstance where the future is fairly clear as to its effect on David's life. Now what I want you to see is in verse 2 through 4, it says, The Lord said to David, Go up. David asked, where shall I go? I love this. David, God says, go up. David says, where do you want me to go? Okay. Most of us are impetuous like I, I. I tend to be very impetuous. Just jump ahead and then ask for directions later. David said, where shall I go? And the Lord said to Hebron. Verse 2 says this. So David went up there. Okay, what is it saying? David is 
immediately responsive to the clear direction of God. And his response has no contingency. David doesn't say, okay, I'll go up and give it a test. No, David goes in full faith. He takes his whole family, all of his goods. He leaves this city of Ziklag, which has been his place of, uh, of, of kind of hiding as a fugitive. He leaves all of that behind and steps out in faith in God's plan and God's promise once God gives clear direction. Now, one thing I want to say at this point is this. In chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, The men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah, not over the whole nation. Okay? And that's just an important kind of marker to note in your mind. This is the first step to the fulfillment of the promise that God had given to David through Samuel. So it becomes king over one tribe out of 12. Okay? So the nation is now divided. You have the house of Saul governing the 11 tribes to the north, the offspring of Saul. And you have the house of David ruling in the tribe of Judah. Okay, and that that has long-term significance that we'll come to at another time. Okay, so David is anointed. He's patient. He's now moving in the plan of God, the wisdom of God in taking David to Hebron. And the delay in taking over the whole nation becomes very clear very shortly. If you study this text out, I would encourage you to do that. Begin to read through the next two chapters. You're going to find that there are two prominent characters that emerge. One's name is Abner. Abner is the general of the defeated king's armies. Saul is dead. Abner is the general of uh, Saul's army. He is cousin to Saul. As you read through this text on a couple occasions, you're going to find that Abner knows the truth about David. Abner knows that God has appointed David to be the king of Israel. But since Abner is a cousin to King Saul, what does Abner see? Abner sees an opportunity. He's not a man listening to God. He knows what God has said, but he refuses to yield to it at this time. And so what does he do? He, say, he takes the surviving son of Saul, whose name is Ishbosheth, and he anoints him and makes him a puppet king. And make no mistake about it, when you read through this text, you will find very clearly and repeatedly that Ishbosheth, the puppet king, is scared to death of Abner the general. So who's really running things? Abner is the one that's really running things in the nation of Israel, the northern 11 tribes. I thought of two words that describe Abner. He is selfish and he is ambitious. He's all about himself and he's very quick to move to secure his own future. The second individual that arises is Joab. Joab is a general in David's army. He is a man of war. He's loyal, but he's vengeful. Okay, he's a little bit of, of a half-cock. He's a kind of a cowboy general. Not real trustworthy, not as interested in the plan and will of God, certainly as he should be. And so over the, the kind of the run of chapter 2, you find that there is this very sad story. It's the story of a, of a war between Abner and Job. And one of the, one of the backstories if, 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 that emerges out of chapter 2 is that Joab, or I'm sorry, Abner ends up killing one of Joab's younger brothers, Asahel. So as you read through chapter 2, you find that these two start warring. And there's a lot of of blood and a lot of suffering and a lot of brokenness as individuals seek out 
their kind of place and their posterity. A lot of brokenness. Uh, Joab is nursing a bitter grudge towards Abner, who killed his brother. And you're going to find as you work through the text that he will not let that go. As the war ensues, if you go down to uh, verse 26 of chapter 2, you're going to find as this kind of horrendous event is taking place, Abner, after killing Asahel, cries out to Joab, verse 26. He says, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Now, what's going on here is Abner is strong, but he's in a losing position. You'll find out the summary of this battle is that David loses, I believe it's 18 men, and Saul's side under Ishbosheth loses 300 plus men. And so suddenly Abner begins to realize that his uh, fortunes are not looking good, and there's a brokenness in this plea, and he cries out. And Joab answers in verse 27, and he says, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. And there would have been more loss and more brokenness and more bloodshed. Here, I think, is the lesson. As David waits patiently and seeks God's time and God's plan, there is a sadness of men taking matters into their own hands. There's payback, there's vengeance, uh, and the road becomes very dark and very gloomy and heavy. It ends with a deep-seated and costly hostility, unresolved issues, and open ends. These are the results of rejecting God's perspective. A lot of loss and a lot of pain. Verse 1 of chapter 3 gives us this summary. It says, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that is between Joab and Abner, lasted a long time. And you're going to find as you study through the text, that's upwards of seven and a half years that this civil war rages as people resist the plan of God and as David patiently sits back and waits for God to point him to the next step in his life. So David patiently seeks God's time and God's plan. When you come to 2 Samuel 3, you find God advancing his plan and clearing a path to the throne as David waits. Now verse 1 of chapter 3 not only says that the war was long and hard, but it also says that David grew stronger and stronger while Saul grew weaker and weaker. And folks, as you read through this text, here's something that's very clear. This is God's declared will that David would be king. So these descriptions are really descriptions of God moving and shifting powers so that ultimately his plan in David's life that David is waiting patiently to see fulfilled is coming into fruition. You'll find hints of that as you read through chapter 3. In chapter 3, you'll find this basic flow. Abner gets into a tiff with Ishbosheth, his puppet king. Abner finally yields to what is clearly the plan and will of God. And so what he does in his anger against Ishbosheth, he goes down to David and says, David, I'll bring all the tribes of Israel over to you. Do you realize what's happening? Without any more bloodshed, Joab go, or Abner goes before David and says, David, I've had enough. He finally yields to the plan that God has made clear to him. And he talks, about, talks to David and he seals a deal to unite Israel and Judah. Now, when Joab hears about this conversation between Abner and David, 
what do you think his response is? Oh, good, I'm so glad the struggle's over and there will be no more fighting and let's embrace God's plan. It's not what happens. What Joab does when he hears of the discussion between King David and Abner, Joab blows up. He has an exceedingly strong and fleshly moment. And what he does is he, 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 he goes after uh, Abner and he has him killed. Why? Because all that Joab can think about is not all the beautiful things that God is doing around him. All he can think about is the fact that Abner killed my brother Asahel and I will have my justice. And that vengeful spirit takes over and begins to rule the life of Joab so that he can have no joy in all the things that God is doing around him. He's set on one thing, getting his man and getting his vengeance. And so once once David hears that Abner has been killed, David realizes something. Abner came to David with the promise of bringing the other 11 tribes. When the 11 tribes hear that Abner has been killed, what are they going to think? David double-crossed Abner. And what's David interested? David is interested in clearing his name. He wants them to know that he is a man who has been waiting on God to move and to shake the, 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 the earth for his will and his plan. David has been waiting. And so in verse 28 of chapter 3, David declares this. When he hears that, that, that Joab has avenged the blood of Asahel by killing Abner, here's what David says. He understands how foolish and rash Joab has been, been and that Joab has put at risk this work that God is doing. That David would now not be trusted because how could David separate himself from the actions of his general? So verse 28 says later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner. And then here's what David does to make sure that they know David holds a funeral for Abner. And he forces Joab and the others that were complicit in this murder of Abner to march behind the casket of Abner while David marches in front of the casket. It's fascinating to me that David is, is, is so committed to trusting uh, in God's advancing of all of this that he can take time to grieve the loss of one who was once an enemy. And he forces Joab to step in line. Verse 36, it says this, as the people of Israel and Judah watched this procession, it says, all the people took note and were pleased. They were amazed at the level of compassion and justice that David was demanding. He was acting as a strong king who would not tolerate this type of insurrection and injustice and revenge. So he's trusting in God. And as he does, and as he honors this general who has died, the people were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, the son of Ner. And all of a sudden, you start to get the picture. The reason David is going through these things is so that his name will will maintain some level of integrity as he waits on God, as God advances his plan and path of David to the throne. Now, chapter 4 is simply about Saul's offspring fading and David's 
growing. Ishbosheth, the puppet king, uh, is eliminated. David is not comp- complicit in the killing of Abner, nor is he participating in the killing of Ishbosheth. All of that happens from within. And all of a sudden, God has cleared away as David patiently waited and trusted the plan of God. May this uh, lesson of trusting God and waiting for God to clear the way be something that encourages and challenges and protects our lives. At the end of seven and a half years of civil war, God has arranged events so that David was finally crowned king of Israel in God's time. I want you to turn to the last chapter then, chapter 5, real quickly. 2 Samuel 5. Now we come to the other book. And so in, in chapters 1 and 2, David is anointed king of Judah, one tribe. When we come to chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, we find David being anointed king over the entirety of Israel. And now this crescendo that started in chapter 2 has a greater sound, a, a, a greater magnificence to it. As David now, after years as a fugitive, now it's a total of 20 years, 13 years as a, as a fugitive, seven and a half years as king of Judah only. So for 20 years, David, with integrity, has been waiting upon the plan of God to unfold. And verse 3 of chapter 5 is beautiful. It says, when all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, that's in Judah, they made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And after they made the covenant, this agreement of new leadership of David over all of Israel, it says they anointed David king over Israel. And all of a sudden, you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, when David is called out of the sheep pens to shepherd the people of God. He's anointed symbolically by Samuel to become king. And then when you get to 2 Samuel 2 and 2 Samuel 5, you find God fulfilling his word and pouring his blessing over this incredible servant. Here's what we learn. In spite of delays and abundant opposition and disappointment, brokenness, conspiracies, attempts on his life. We see God protecting and advancing his man and his purposes in difficult times. And in this story, here's what happens. The cave dweller takes the throne. And he moves from this place of hiddenness and darkness, having waited on God with deep integrity and patience and justice. And now God has his man in the place where he desired for him to be. Now, this text leaves you longing for an eternal and righteous king. A king who is like David, but not like David. One word hangs over all human kings, and that is the word disappointment. And while we know that David, in terms of the grand scheme of his life from Psalm 78, his basic reputation was he guided the people of God and shepherded them with the integrity of his heart. We know that that is the overarching picture of David's life. But the truth is that David is a king who, because of his selfishness and sinfulness at times, still was a man who disappointed the people of God. Sometimes people will say to me, do you like such and such a politician. My, my response is this. They all disappoint and they all make me long for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
You see, for Israel, this was a glorious day. David has, has kind of come into his own. He's, he's finally taken the throne. And what everyone knew and everyone talked about, the promise of God to David, has now come to fruition. But there is a sense in which we should hold that even a little bit loosely. Because we'll find as we move through the rest of the story that even David, a man who waited for God with integrity, also would let his people down. It's just the way it is in a fallen world. So what are the lessons that emerge out of this account from David's life? I think the big picture lesson is this. God fulfills his promises and his children should trust his plans. And when we don't trust God's plans, what do we do? We create all kinds of problems. We make a mess of everything. So I think the practical lesson is trust God's plan and maintain your integrity. That's what David did. Folks, listen. When I hear the name David, here's here's what I historically have always thought. I've I've always tended to think about his failures. But when I read Psalm 78... The inspired summary of David's life is what? He guided the people and shepherded them in the integrity of his heart. The overarching theme of David's life is that he wanted God's perspective on things. That, that, does that mean he never fails? No, but it does mean that David experiences the grace of God just like you and I need. We strive to live with integrity. We strive to do the will and plan of God. But we know what it is to fail. We know what it is to struggle. The life of David will eventually teach us that there's grace for broken and hurting people. We learn that on the part of David's generals, compromise is deadly. And in the life of David, we will see the cracks appear in the facade of his life. One of the texts that we didn't read is if you go back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, you'll find that by that time, David's fortunes are growing Also, his family is growing. At that time, he has up to six wives in clear violation of God's will. Deuteronomy 17, 17. God talking about what his anointed king must look like. He says, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And as you study, David, in in, in this season of, of great integrity and waiting and seeking God and inquiring of the Lord, there's also this other part of David's life that isn't all that it could be. And may God make us aware in our own lives that while a number of things in our life might be going well, be careful that you're not coddling hidden sin in your life or agendas that are contrary to God's plans and purposes because they will begin to sabotage the good work that God is seeking to do in your life. The truth is that David handled affliction better than he handled promotion. Here's the interesting thing. When you go through a season of difficulty, when you're facing an enemy, what do you pray for? You know what I tend to pray for first? God, get me out of this situation quick. Instead of saying, God, I trust you. And if you want me to stay in Hebron for a time, I'll stay. You see, that's the part of David's life that's beautiful. He's not ambitious. He's not grabbing at the throne. He's waiting for God. He's inquiring of the Lord. He handled caves better than he handled crowns. Can I say this to you as men this morning? As leaders of your home and as leaders of the church and hopefully leaders in our community. Compromise is usually related to four avenues, one writer has said. 
silver, sloth, sex, and self. They will take you down in a, must, in a messy, painful, and bloody road. And may, as we study the life of David, and as we see a man who the overarching picture of his life is integrity, may we realize that there were weak spots in his life, and most of them related to these four things that tend to be more attractive than God's will and God's plan and God's purpose. May God help us and may God protect us from the weaknesses that will be exposed in David's life, written for us as examples to us upon whom the end of the ages have come. The reason David's weaknesses are listed in this text is so that we can learn from them. Not so that we can criticize David, but so that we can learn what it is to become a man more and more after God's own heart. Be patient in the season of delay. What delay in your life today is tempting you to take matters into your own hands to follow your own perspective rather than God's? What circumstance is testing you to compromise your testimony, your integrity, and steal glory from God in your life? Do what is right in that circumstance. Honor God and leave the results with him. That's a lesson that we learn from David's life. He trusted God so much that he would wait with integrity to see what God would do. May that lesson come to us very, very strong. Be careful to guard your heart and your integrity in seasons of delay. The theological picture from the text, I think, is very beautiful. As we wait for a coming king, we read this text. It says he chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds for the care, from the care of ewes and suckling, suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. David in this text is portrayed as an ideal yet imperfect king who blesses his people in his life and yet ultimately disappoints them morally, and in his death. David causes me to long for a greater king. David causes me to long for the greater son of David that's spoken about in the book of Romans chapter 1. A king who will rule in righteousness, live a holy life, who will never let us down, who after his death will rise again from the grave, victorious over all of our sin and all of our suffering. This is the one that David ultimately points to. His name is Jesus, David's greater son, who would be born to Mary according to Matthew 1. And one day, a thousand years later, after David's life, he would stand and declare in the midst of the people of God, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Folks, here's what happens. David is a great king and his people trust him, but they experience disappointment. Jesus is the greatest king. And all those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. And as we serve that king of kings and lord of lords who lays down his life for the sheep, may we wait on God's plan with the integrity of our hearts, guiding our families, guiding in our workplaces, uh, guiding in our communities, people of integrity who are waiting on and longing for the purpose of God to be fulfilled in their lives. David blesses his people in his life and disappoints them in his death. 
His greater son blesses people by his perfect life and death on the cross and is declared to be the son of God, Romans 1 says, by his resurrection from the dead. And folks, this morning as we conclude our service, we're going to share together in the Lord's table. And we're going to partake of elements that proclaim for us afresh and anew the cross work of Jesus Christ, his broken body and his shed blood by which we find hope and forgiveness as we trust in God. This morning, if you're a believer, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to give us an opportunity on a regular basis to reflect on and to remember what Christ has done for us, to examine ourselves, to see if there are any of the tendencies that are present in David, which I'm sure for all of us, they're there. And what God wants us to do as we come before him at the Lord's table is to focus on the elements that promise and guarantee forgiveness and hope for sinners. And he wants us, as we reflect on these elements, to take them, to think about them, to give thanks to God, to confess any known sin in our lives, and then to eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And as we do that, here's what Paul says, in that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What is the Lord's death? It is hope for sinners like David and Tim Hoff and Sandy Wagner, right? It's hope. It's hope. We wait in integrity, but we know that there are times that we're weak and we fail. We want to be better, but we find we're worse. And the blood of Christ and the broken body of Christ speaks hope for people. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, here's what I would encourage you to do before you come to partake of the elements. I would encourage you in the quietness of your heart to bow your head before God. And don't look at Saul, this very clear sinner. Look at David. Look at a man who by and large had a moral life and yet was a sinner in need of a savior. And then look to David's greater son who hangs on a cross in your place to bear the consequence of your sin, who on the third day is declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That he is not the king of an earthly domain. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He has the power and the right by his blood to expel sin from your life, to forgive you and to free you so that you can live and serve him with integrity of your heart. So the men are going to pass the elements out as they come. I'd encourage you to take time just to quiet your heart before God. Examine yourself. Confess what you need to confess. Then boldly eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And in doing that, say, Jesus, you are hope for sinners. And we praise you. Father, we thank you for your word that challenges us and changes us. Thank you for your spirit that guides us and allows us to see how these glorious truths are put into practice in our daily lives. Oh God, let us be men and women and young people of integrity who for the overarching theme of their life served God, loved God, and when they sinned, they confessed it. We want to do that this morning in the Lord's table, Lord Jesus. So bless as the elements are passed and as we receive them, glorify yourself in all things we pray. And all God's people said, amen.